Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 109, Dr. Keith Ward on Christ and the Cosmos, Part 1. Since 2009, Dr. Keith Ward has been a professorial research fellow at Heathrop College in London. Prior to this, he held posts in philosophy, theology, or religious studies at Gresham College, the University of Oxford, the University of London, Cambridge University, the University of St. Andrews, and the University of Glasgow. He's the author of more than 40 books, which include The Case for Religion, Concepts of God, Is Religion Dangerous?, The Evidence for God, In Defense of the Soul, Rethinking Christianity, Divine Action, What the Bible Really Teaches, The Philosopher and the Gospels, Comparative Theology in Five Volumes, God, Autonomy, and Morality, and God, A Guide for the Perplexed. But he's here with us today to discuss his 2015 book called Christ and the Cosmos, A Reformulation of Trinitarian Doctrine, which he describes as a sort of concluding overview of my own theological thought. Dr. Ward, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you. Dr. Ward, one of the most famous passages in the Bible is the very beginning of the Gospel according to John, which says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Many Christians seem to understand this to mean in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And then later on, Jesus becomes a human being. Dr. Ward, is this how you read John 1? Well, I wouldn't read it as saying in the beginning Jesus was with God. I think Jesus is, you know, in Hebrew it's Joshua, really, but Jesus is the Greek translation of that word. And that's the name of a human person. So I think that uh, before the Incarnation, it would be inappropriate to say that Joshua or Jesus was with God right in the beginning. And I think you have to uh, disentangle the humanity of Jesus when he was born uh, and and was named as Jesus from whatever it was that existed before then. Uh, It was something, but not something that was called Jesus. And one thing that's interesting about your book is that you seems to me clearly distinguish between the man Jesus and then God's eternal logos or son, which indwells Jesus. What, in your view, Dr. Ward, is the difference between those two? Well, that, that's a very uh, complicated question, but uh, um, I think it's very important theologically to say that as the Council of Chalcedon, a very early and important Christian council, said Jesus was fully human. And I think we understand that and ought to understand it today as saying he was a male human person. But also that same council said Jesus was fully divine. And so you've got a duality there. You've got humanity and divinity somehow united in one person. I want to retain that. I want to retain that unity with two different aspects, a human aspect and a divine aspect. I want to say, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the human aspect. And when we talk about the divine aspect, then, according to John, anyway, uh, uh, an appropriate way of naming that is to say it is God's Word, the Word of God, 
you could say the son of God, you could say the wisdom of God, but it, it wouldn't have a human proper name. I mean, that, that would seem quite uh, impossible to me. So would it be right to say that the word isn't a self? Well, again, self is a complicated word, but yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, word, if you, if you ask what the word word means, in the beginning was the word, it's a very strangely impersonal term, isn't it? A word is something that somebody speaks. It's not a person. It's certainly not a self. I mean, a word is not a self. So if you're going to describe something as a word, then you have to be thinking of someone who speaks that word, and the word is not itself going to be a person. Okay, so I think that follows from a natural reading of the text. And do you see Proverbs 8 as a background to that? Yeah, I do. I think uh, Proverbs 8, of course, talks about the wisdom of God, Chachmah, the wisdom of God, various possible translations of that, but uh, it was widely regarded in Jewish thought as a sort of emanation of God or sort of um, one of the aspects of the divine being, if you like. And I think whoever wrote uh, the prologue of John's Gospel had that very much in mind. So then in verse 14, when it talks about the Word became flesh and lived among us, that's not to be understood as basically a spirit becoming a human or entering a human or something. How how would you paraphrase the Word became flesh and lived among us? (laughs) Yeah, we're starting off with some extremely complicated questions. We're jumping into the uh, deep end. (laughs) Yeah. In, uh, in most traditional Christian theology, that sentence, the word became flesh, is actually said to be a metaphor, which is not literally true. And the reason in traditional theology for saying that is that the word, that is God in God's own being, doesn't change at all. That's a standard move in traditional you know, medieval uh, theology. So the word doesn't become anything. So starting from there, you'd say, well... Okay, this is a metaphorical statement, the Word became flesh. It's, the Word didn't change at the Incarnation. It was the humanity which changed by being united to the changeless Word of God. Okay, that's the traditional position. Now, having said all that, I don't accept the traditional position. I'm just explaining that it is not a, a weird, radical new view <laughs> that, uh, that that sentence of John is metaphorical and not literal. It, that's the traditional interpretation. Well, I agree that it's metaphorical and not literal. And so you have to ask, well, what, what is the metaphor about? And I suppose it, uh, I would uh, put it like this, that the eternal wisdom of God did, in fact, fully enclose or uh, support or underlie or become united with a truly human person. So you do have a duality. You have a human person, a real person. He's got free will. He's got uh, whatever humans have in their natures. But also you've got to say that united in the most intimate possible way uh, with this human person was was the eternal wisdom of God. So the word becoming flesh for me means that there was a, a new, full unity of human and divine, uh, which we see in Jesus. I don't know if that makes much sense, but it's not the word turning into a human person. It's the word being uh, totally united to a true human person.
Dr. Ward, after carefully reading your book, I suspect that some readers may object that in your Christology, Jesus is, quote, just a man or a mere man. How would you answer that sort of objection? Well, I wouldn't want to be uh, saying that. Uh, I want to say he was truly a man. Uh, that's certainly true. But if you say just a man, then I think I would uh, say I don't want to say that. And if I've given that impression, um, I'm sorry. Uh, what I mean is that perhaps there is an early theologian, uh, Irenaeus, who actually uh, took the view that true humanity, if you are truly human, you would in fact be united to God. So being truly human isn't being a totally separate, uh, holy, self-governing being. It is a being who is essentially dependent on God and would be consciously fully united to God. So to be truly human is already to be united to the divine. And I'm prepared to say that in Christian thought, Jesus is virtually the only truly human being, the only fully human being that has ever been, because only Jesus in Christian thought, generally anyway, only Jesus has been thought to be fully united to God from the first moment of his existence. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's a unity. So what I want to concentrate on is that it's the unity, but it's a compound unity of two different aspects, human and divine. And is it a unity of action, of a of unity of will, and uh, li- basically living in conjunction with one another, or is it unity so as to make one being or one uh, one hypostasis? Yeah, it's the former of those. I mean, the word that I use is a word that occurs in the Bible, but is not made much of. It's the word synergy. And the word synergy means uh, cooperating with in the fullest possible way. I think St. Paul put it well in one of his brilliant comments when Paul said, not I live, but Christ lives in me. Or the way in which we might say the Holy Spirit uh, lives in me. Uh, but we immediately, I hope, go on to say, but not very much, you know. I mean, uh, I hope the Spirit you know, does live and act through me, but not uh, not to a great degree. There's an awful lot of self and... Uh, uh, failure built into that from my nature. Uh, now, I want to use that image, which I suppose in theology you can trace back to the Scottish Bailey brothers, John or Donald Bailey, who are great Presbyterian uh, theologians, I think very, very important theologians of the early 20th century. And they developed what's called a spirit Christology, which tries to talk of the union of human and divine in terms of cooperation or working together. So, Supposing you had a human being in whom the Spirit really did live totally, so that Christ Jesus could say, God uh, works, the Spirit of God works wholly through and in me. Although I make my own decisions, I have my own creative choices, nevertheless these are all in line uh, with what the Spirit of God would want, and indeed my capacities are raised to a new level by the work of the Spirit. So it's that continual, uninterrupted, absolutely unique in degree cooperation between God's spirit and a human person that I think forms the unity of the incarnation. So it's like what Jesus is talking about toward the end of the Gospel of John when he prays that believers may be one even as he and God are one? Yeah, that's a a, a key text for me. I mean, I think, uh, and you ask, well, how how am I going to think about that? How, How is Jesus one with God? How is the Son one with the Father? And, and in what way can we be one 
in that sense. And I, I think you have to reflect on these questions. And in the end, you have to say, well, look, uh, the human mind isn't capable of coming to a, the one correct, absolute, final uh, description of this state of affairs. But you do your best to think, how can I think of this? And the way I want to think of it is in line with what a lot of um, early Christian thinkers have said, which is, well, Jesus is human. He, he is a, a human person, but he's a human person transformed by this union uh, with the divine. And, uh, and so it's some way of thinking, how can I put this across in English, um, which is what we're speaking? And it might be beyond us, really. Uh, so I'm not a person who would make a great fuss about whether somebody's heretical or not, because I would say, well, we're all heretical in the sense that we just can't state perfectly the way we want to state it. But what we want to say is, here the human and the divine were one. So I'd say, yeah, unity and duality, they have to go together and have to be a, a oneness which includes duality. That's what I want to get at anyway. Dr. Ward, this is a difficult question, but I, I apologize in advance for asking it, but you're a very learned person. <laughs> I, I wonder, do you see what you're doing in your Christology as continuous with what the so-called monarchians were doing, late 100s, early 200s? Uh, it's a dark subject, I know, but... It's a dark subject, yes. I think it would be wrong to try to line up any modern view in the English language with what people in the second and third centuries were doing in Greek, probably, right? And mm -hmm. we just can't do that. The, the gap, the linguistic gap, the gap of ways of thinking is too large. We can't even get into their minds. You, you know the phrase, the past is another country. And I think it's true that there's a vast gap of understanding. And I often find talking to Christians, um, you know, I, I do, um, I'm a minister in, in churches in Britain, and talking to Christian members of congregations, they often want everything put in modern English words, but they don't, they're not, they haven't got time to think about how the Greeks thought in the second century AD. You know, it's a difficult historical question. So, what I'm saying there is I don't want to ally myself with or distance myself with any ancient first or second century theologians because I think our languages are so different that we will be talking at cross-purposes all the time. So, no, I don't think I'm like a monarchian, and I don't know what it would be to be a monarchian, because <laughs> if, if we got a monarchian and put him into the 21st century in America, uh, I think he'd be at a loss for words. <laughs>
Dr. Ward, in traditional Catholic Christology, the incarnate Jesus consists of the eternal divine logos, which is mysteriously united with a complete human nature, that is, with a, with a human body and a rational soul. So yeah. they say the resulting composite is man, that man is predicable of it, but it's not a man. And yeah. I know that you disagree with this model in some respects. That's Could right. you explain yeah. that for us? Well, I agree with almost everything you said until you got to the end and said, uh, this is man, but not a man. And I think this has got to do with one of those big changes in thought that I just talked about. I mean, there's a huge gap between the way that intellectuals thought in platonic terms in the early centuries of the church and the way people think now. There's a huge gap. For example, the most obvious example is for a Platonist, for anybody really intellectual who lived in the early centuries of the Christian church, abstract nouns like humanity or deity were more real and more important than concrete particular nouns like me or Keith Ward or, or <laughs> something like that. So the universals were more important than the particulars. Now, that just goes into all theology formed in those days. <clears throat> Whereas now, in the 21st century, people don't even know what that means anymore. I mean, they think it's obvious that tables are more real than the concept of tableness, for example. It's just obvious. But that's a huge change of thought. It didn't happen until after Anselm, you know, it's quite late, the 12th century, perhaps 13th century. Some people associate with the name of Duns Scotus, but I, you don't have to do that. But the change in thought is that in the modern world, since the rise of science, six to, about the 16th century perhaps, we take it for granted that particular things are more real than abstract concepts. Whereas in early Christian theology, they thought the opposite. They thought that the, they wouldn't call them abstract concepts, but the universal concepts are more real uh, than the individuals. So early Christian theologians would say humanity is united to divinity rather than just saying the individual Jesus was united to some individual called God, right? Mm -hmm. they, wouldn't, mm -hmm. they wouldn't think in those terms at all. So I think we've gone through a complete change in the way of thinking about things like that. And that's why I talk about a reformulation of Trinitarian doctrine because I think you can't go on talking the same words when they've changed their meaning, those words. You know, if you say, God is three persons in one substance, or you say, Jesus, we're talking about Jesus at the moment, if you say, Jesus is two natures in one person. If you're not a follower of the philosopher Plato, that doesn't even begin to make sense to you. That's the problem. So how can you make sense of something in a very different philosophical worldview? Now, some philosophers, of course, are Platonists or realists about universals, but I take it that you think that uh, words like humanity and divinity express concepts, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's not thinking. many philosophers. I mean, there are philosophers who might believe anything, of course, and, and there are some philosophers who are still Platonists in the full sense, but most people aren't. Most people have never even heard of Platonism, I would think. Dr. Ward, I noticed that in your book, in one place, you deny that Jesus will literally return and rule the earth and that Jesus will literally judge all humans. Yeah. And you talk in the book about an eschatology where there's a kind of union between the human and divine. I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit what your views are on eschatology. Okay. Well, I think you have to start with saying that our cosmology, our view of the nature of the universe, is completely different from that of the writers of the Bible. I mean, if you go back to times of Genesis, for example, 
people thought the Earth was the center of the universe, the stars were lamps hung on the sky, and the Earth was flat, and it was surrounded by water, you know the story. But there's only one Earth, and we're the most important things in the universe. But now, everybody who knows anything at all about science would say the universe is 14,000 million years old, it's got millions and millions of stars in it, and those stars have planets going round them, and the Earth is just at the edge of the Milky Way, and maybe humans are only one species out of millions of other species that we know nothing about. So it's a different cosmology. Now, the importance of that is to say, in biblical times, it wasn't their fault, it's just what they thought about the world. They thought the world hasn't existed very long, and it won't continue to exist very long. The Earth is the center of it. And now, and now we know that the Earth is a fairly recent uh, event in the history of the universe, and that when the Earth, this planet, ceases to exist, there are still going to be billions of years of universe still left. So once you really digest this difference of cosmology, you can no longer think in terms of the end of the world happening quite soon. Because whereas for the early biblical writers, the end of the world would have been the end of the universe, the whole thing would stop. For us, the end of the planet Earth wouldn't mean anything to the rest of the universe, would have no effect on everything else would keep going. So we can't talk about that eschatology anymore in terms of something that might happen at any moment. So, you know, if you're going to, you've, you've got a choice of saying the whole of science is absolute rubbish, well, you could do that if you want. But if you choose not to do that, and I certainly choose not to do that, then you've got to rethink the whole of eschatology, the doctrine of the end of all things. What, what, and what you've got to say, basically, is the end of all things is going to be, I think, in terms of our time, billions of years in the future. And there, most scientists think the universe will come to an end, but if you say when, they're going to say, well, it's about 200 billion years in the future, right? So it's not going to be next week. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, this planet might end next week, but that's not the end of the universe. So if you do that bit of rethinking, well, it's not too hard to say, look, what they were thinking about when they wrote these things was the ultimate goal of life and the universe and everything and that ultimate goal is not just the end of things and then followed by nothing it is actually an incorporation of the universe and of all creation into god and you you read about this actually in ephesians and colossians chapter one uh, where it actually says that in christ all things and it actually says everything in heaven and on earth that's that all the galaxies will be united in god so i think of eschatology in the sense of the whole universe ending up as being united to god and that's going to be billions of years in the future but of course you have to add that for each one of us little animals crawling around this planet we're going to die long before that happens. So for us, it won't be billions of years in the future. It'll be when we die, as far as we're concerned. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's the, Our time will have stopped when we die. But you say, well, um, it's not too hard. If you read the Old Testament, you know, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all, all the prophets, 
they talk about uh, things as though they're going to happen next week. I mean, Jerusalem is going to be the chief city in the world. All the nations are coming to worship in the temple. All the nations will be slaves to the Jewish people, right? You read this again and again in the Old Testament. And that's associated with the coming of the Messiah, of course. That's what the Messiah does. He brings this about. And it sounds as if it's going to be next week. What you've got to say is, well, this is a a metaphorical way of saying that's the ultimate future. That's what God has in mind. But it's actually, in physical terms, going to be billions of years in the future. So uh, that's quite a big change for a lot of people. But I think it keeps the heart of the teaching alive. And the heart of the teaching is this, that the whole of earthly life is not futile. It will find fulfillment in God. But that was completely unimaginable to anybody living 2,000 years ago. It's pretty unimaginable for most of us now, but we're told it's true. The universe is going to exist for billions of years. So I think, yeah, eschatology has to be seen in this way, that all the biblical terms about eschatology are metaphors and symbols of realities which cannot be taken literally, but do point to a fulfillment of everything in God. It's really important that Christians should, uh, that's why I called my book Christ in the Cosmos. Christians should actually put Christ in the cosmos that we know of millions of stars, millions of galaxies, perhaps millions of universes. Where does Christ fit into that? And that's, that's what I'm trying to make suggestions about anyway. So the ultimate end, do you envision that as, as the, the physical cosmos not existing, and then you just have God and souls? Is that what's going on when you talk about the union of well, I don't the think those are the, yeah, I don't think those are the only alternatives, actually. I'm pretty sure, scientists tell me, that's why I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this universe will come to an end. But actually the Bible says that as well, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It won't be like this one, it'll be without corruption. In other words, the second law of thermodynamics, which is absolutely crucial to the existence of this universe, will no longer exist, because that's the law of entropy, which says all things decay. Well, in the new heaven and the new earth, things won't decay anymore. So it is not going to be this physical universe. St. Paul said flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what I think Christians ought to be thinking these days is this physical universe will end, but there is another form of being. It's not just souls. It's not disembodied souls. There's some form of embodiment, but there'll be quite different forms of embodiment. There'll be a different form of existence in which God's presence will be clearer to us, more intense, and we'll know and love God better. It's not just souls and God, but it's a community, a communion, a universe, but with different, a different structure, a new heaven and a new earth. So that's my vision, which I think is pretty biblical, really. This whole universe will end and there'll be a different sort of universe with different laws and ruled by God openly and visibly, uh, which is not the case with us now. Dr. Ward, thanks for talking with us. Okay. This week's Thinking Music has been the song Behind Your Window by Kai Engel. You can hear or download that whole track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. 
First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.